This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, Michael Oglesby joins us to talk data science, ML ops, and the new data ops toolkit. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the basement of my house and with me today I have Michael Oglesby to join us. So Michael, what do you do here at NetApp and how do I reach you? Yeah, so hey Justin, it's uh, it's great to be on with you today. I'm I'm coming to you from the, the uh, guest bedroom in, in my house. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, my name is, is Mike Oglesby. I'm a technical marketing engineer here at NetApp on the AI solutions team. Uh, so we're we're a, a solutions team that that kind of covers all of the the NetApp product lines and and uh, business units. And and I'm on a a part of that solutions team that focuses specifically on our our AI and and ML solutions. And I'm I'm personally specifically focused on our our MLOps solutions and our our data scientist and and developer facing tools um, and in terms of of how how someone could reach me the the easiest way is is on LinkedIn um, I'm at, I'm out there on on LinkedIn and anyone is welcome to reach out to me there all right excellent so you you mentioned developers and you know, ML ops and that sort of thing. Do you have a background in any of those things? Are you a former developer? I mean, what got you into this specific aspect of this or, you know, this type of business model? Yeah. So I have been a a developer in the past. Um, but my, my most recent kind of experience before I, I came over to NetApp was as a, a kind of, architect and and uh you know designer of a a line of business uh, application within a a large financial services company um you know kind of a, a a business architect if you will that that worked very closely with uh our development team so i i did that for for close to to five years and uh, worked worked very closely with the development team as we you know, migrated a, a legacy application, a legacy mainframe application to to a, a, a more modern web application backed by a a more modern database. So I you know I, I worked with the developers as we we worked to architect that from both a, a business and Technical perspective, uh, and and became very familiar with you know modern modern DevOps, CI/CD processes, and um, you know kind of the the mo- modern cloud native Kubernetes based application development paradigm, uh, and and so after that, I, I came over to to NetApp as a, a technical marketing engineer focused on our DevOps solutions. Uh, but that was that was kind of a, a short-lived stint. Uh, 
about six months into to my time here, uh, my my focus shifted to kind of still DevOps, but but very focused on the the AI and and machine learning space. So I I became more of a uh, ML ops technical marketing engineer, and I've been doing that for uh, a couple of years now. Yeah, and I asked specifically because you know this did sound very much like not just for developers, but for a DevOps type of you know engineer, right? So somebody that works on not just coding, but also has to the responsibility of managing an infrastructure. So you know you came into to NetApp as a as a DevOps uh, t- TME, and you moved into MLOps, and that just kind of shows the progression of DevOps into a real world solutions based role, right? Yeah, I see MLOps is is really just a you know kind of a, a subset of of DevOps. Uh, you know, there there may be some that that disagree with me about that, but you know, I I think of a data scientist as is really just a uh, you know from a, a a DevOps perspective, they're just a, another type of of developer with unique needs. You know, specific needs around the kind of code they're writing the, the kind of data they need access to and the and the kinds of development environments that they they need and and so it's it's really a a nat, you know mlops is really a natural extension of the the devops movement to to support this this new kind of developer so you came from a background in, in financial services and DevOps, and you moved over to data science and ML. What sort of things did you have to learn on the fly? Like, you know, I'm guessing you didn't know about these specific industries in, in general. You had to kind of figure them out as you went. So what did you learn that, you know, you, you would go back and tell your, yourself as you started that was important to know? Yeah, so I, I worked a little bit with the the data science team at my my previous company, so I was, I was somewhat familiar with with what they do, but um, you know, kind of w- what we were working on at my previous company was more, uh, you know, legacy machine learning type of stuff. So when I, I moved into this new role, I, I really dove headfirst into the the more modern deep learning algorithms, and um, you know, I, I went through. I went through a, a, a you know several trainings, kind of kind of coming up to speed on you know what it what is this this deep learning stuff. Side note, it's 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 really just a a bunch of really fancy math, but but you know I, I spent a lot of time coming up to speed on it and you know kind of familiarizing myself with the the typical deep learning. Uh, model training process and and what was unique about it and and what, what the you know specific needs were around it and and you know really how it differs from legacy machine learning is in typically the amount of data that's used. I mean, it, typically when we're when we're talking deep learning, we're talking extremely large data sets to train these these really you know the these really fancy and and powerful models that that are actually you know can become quite good at, at making real life real time 
predictions, uh, presuming that they've they've been trained on enough real world data. So yeah, you know, in the in the world of deep learning, uh, data is really, I mean, it, it it's it's a it's a first class citizen. It's it's of the the utmost importance to the the process. Um, another thing I learned that I would say kind of. Uh, it is unique to the deep learning process when compared to both traditional software development and um, traditional machine learning is that it's an extremely iterative and experimental process. You know, all software development's iterative, right? And that you, you know, you write little components at a time and then you, you know, you build new components on top of them and, and all the changes build on, on top of each other. But deep learning is really iterative and experimental in a, in a different way. The, the deep learning process is, is really, you know, you take a, a training job. So, so, you know, let's say I'm a, a data scientist working on training a, a deep learning model. I write some code to train my model, uh, and and it's really not the code's really not that complicated. It's it's just a you know typically just a few lines of code. You know, there's frameworks out there that can can really simplify the coding for me. Things like TensorFlow and and PyTorch. Uh, so I write just a few lines of code. But then I don't just run that code and train my model and I'm done. You know, if I'm a, a data scientist working on a, a, a deep learn training, a deep learning model, I will take that training code and I'm going to run it over and over and over and over and over again. You know, sometimes, you know, 10, 20, 30, even, you know, over 100 times. And each time that I run it, I'm going to tweak something. So I'm going to I'm going to tweak maybe some. Some uh, the the term that's used is hyperparameters associated with my model, or I might tweak the model architecture itself, or I I might actually change the data set. So I, I might take my my training data set and that I'm using to train my model, uh, and not only um, you know, you know I, I might I might renormalize the data, but I might actually like totally re-architect the data set into a different format that's going to fit a a different model architecture. And so, you, but basically, the idea is I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat this process over and over again, tweaking something each time. And and so it's it's compared to traditional software development, a much more iterative experimental. Uh, process. So as far as machine learning versus deep learning, can you kind of give me in, in the listeners a, a real world example of what something that uses machine learning is versus something that uses deep, deep learning? You know, for example, like a self-driving car versus like, you know, a hedge fund that tries to, to predict transactions for a stock trade. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm I'm far from the, the world's utmost expert on this, but an example would be uh, something like a, a Monte Carlo simulation that would be predicting portfolio performance, uh, that would typically be considered machine learning. Uh, whereas, you know, you, you mentioned a self-driving car, and, and I think uh, for a lot of people, that's probably one of the most tangible, visible examples of, of deep learning. Basically, you know, that, that 
self-driving car has a bunch of cameras and and uh, potentially also you know lidar sensors on it and and basically the um, you, you know basically the data scientists who have have trained the models that are driving that car have taken you know hours and hours and hours and hours worth of footage and sensor data and run that through a training process to produce a model that uh, essentially is is able to recognize just about any situation and and drive the the car accordingly yeah and and as we've seen i mean these things aren't perfect right i mean self-driving cars sometimes have weird mishaps or you know even resulting in you know accidents and people getting hurt and then you know financial traders sometimes don't recognize something that's happening in a real time real world event like the robin hood trading thing with with gamestop so you know you you have these models that have to be adjusted based on the data that has been presented you know over the course of time yeah the data is really key i mean the model is only as good as the data that you use to train it so it's it's uh you know, I, it's, you know, I, I, I'm biased as a, as a storage data focused guy, but the, the data in my opinion is, is, um, really the, the most important part of the process, you know, at, at least in the, the enterprise setting, uh, you know, in the, in the academic research setting, maybe the, you know, one could make the argument that that's not the case, but in, in an enterprise production, real world setting, uh, the, the data is, is of the utmost importance because, you know, if we take a self-driving car, for example, you know, if it runs into a situation that it hasn't seen in any of the, the training data that was kind of run through that model to train it, then, uh, you know, it, it, there's no telling how it's going to react. You know, it, it might make a low confidence prediction and, and make the, the wrong decision. So this, you know, deep learning is really about, you know, what, what differentiates deep learning from machine learning is the, the complexity of the model and the, the amount of data that's required to, to train it. Right. And I mean, I, I agree with that assessment. I mean, it's garbage in, garbage out, essentially, where if it's bad data, then it's going to be a bad result. And that goes for anything, whether it's, you know, self-driving cars or automation. If you if you create a bad automation <laughs> recipe, then you're going to have a bad result. It, exactly. And, you know, it, it's interesting that you bring up automation because, um, you, you know, one could, could kind of make the argument that deep learning is really just kind of the the next step in automation, you know, we've, we've become really good at automating things that, you know, can be automating processes that can be easily represented in code. Um, what deep learning does is it helps us automate tasks that can't easily be, um, you know, represented in code. So like if, if as a developer, I was tasked with, writing the code to drive a car well that you know that's impossible right but a, a deep learning model can learn how to how to do it so it's really kind of the next step as as we advance automation capabilities yeah i mean eventually we'll be able to have deep learning learn how to adjust to automation mistakes and you know changes in the environment and, and sense those things and 
make the appropriate automation adjustments. So there's there's a lot of practical use cases that deep learning can help solve that helps free up time for for the people that are creating these things to begin with. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's uh you know, it it hopefully deep learning and it's in its best uh incarnation frees us up from from uh having to perform repetitive mundane tasks and allows us to focus on much more exciting and and fun stuff. Hopefully we don't end up like the uh the, the folks in Wally. Have you seen Wally? Yeah, where the, the everybody's <laughs> going around in those pods. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah fingers that, crossed. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's not go there. Um all right. So as far as this goes, you know, as as you're trying to architect a solution like this, there are a series of challenges that that are there, right? So what are those challenges that you see that are most common when people are, are asking you how they can design this type of uh, architecture for their environments? So when when we were first getting involved in the MLOps space at NetApp, uh, we identified two major challenges that um, were, were kind of unsolved that the the existing software and tool ecosystem had not really solved. Uh, so, so the first of these challenges is around having to maintain multiple copies of the, the training data set. And I, I kind of alluded to this earlier. So uh, I mentioned that uh, you know, training these deep learning models is an extremely iterative and experimental process. Uh, and I mentioned that oftentimes between each iteration, a data scientist will have to, to modify the training data set in some way to to fit to that particular experiment. And um, the, the challenge around this is they want to, you know, you, you want to preserve your original training data set, your gold source data set, if you will. So, you know, what we found when we were first talking to data scientists is that basically what, what most of them were doing is just they, they, had a, a gold source training data set, and then each time they needed to modify it for an experiment, um, they were just doing a copy paste, you know. And, and then they're they're sitting around, depending on the size of the data set, waiting hours, or you know, some of them even told us it, it took it took days before they they had their copy of their data set and and could get on to their their next experiment, and so. You had these data scientists that, uh, you know, are, are very highly trained, highly specialized, and and uh, they were, you know, basically spending all this time sitting around waiting instead of actually getting to to do the data science that they were they were hired to do. Uh, so so that was the the first challenge that that we were seeing the, the second challenge and, and second big gap in the ecosystem that we, we heard about is, um, you know, basically was around traceability for the, the training data. So, um, you know, basically, you know, I mentioned when a data scientist is training a deep learning model, right? They write a little bit of code that, 
takes some data, feeds it through a model and, and trains that model and produces a, an, an output model. And, and the MLOps tool ecosystem uh, had lots of options for versioning both the, the training code and uh, the models and, and also for tracking the experiments that, you know, basically tracking each experiment that produced a, a different model. Cause um, you know, I, I didn't really touch on this earlier, but the, you know, basically the way the process works is when you go through these hundreds of different iterations at the end, you'll have all these different experiments and different versions of the same model. And basically the data scientist will pick the one that, that, uh, offers the best trade-off between resource utilization, performance, and prediction accuracy. And that's the model that they'll end up deploying to, to production. Uh, and so in terms of versioning their, their training code, I mean, that, that's been a solved problem for decades, right? I mean, most of them just, just uh, use Git. You know, it's, we, we have tools for versioning code. That's, that's not a, uh, a, a problem. Uh, in terms of tracking their experiments, there's lots of, of both proprietary and open source tools out there out there for for uh, that that handle experiment tracking. So you know, Kubeflow is one, MLflow is one. Both of those are open source. All the public cloud platforms have have solutions for this. So so that was also a a solved problem in the ecosystem, even if the ecosystem itself is is a little bit, you know, kind of new, evolving, and, and immature. There, the the problem was was addressed, and 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 there were tools that could could solve the problem. Uh, likewise, there's there's plenty of model repositories out there. Uh, and also, you know, a, a, a lot of data scientists will just just store their model in a in an S3 bucket, and and you know that's a that's a fine solution for storing different versions of of different models. Um, but there there's also tools like MLflow, which specifically, you know, it's an open source tool that specifically offers a a pretty slick model repository with a, a web interface where the um, you know, the model's kind of linked to the experiment and you can download the model straight from there or, the, you know, there's a there's a Python library you can use to, to pull down the model um, wherever you want to deploy it. So there were there were robust solutions for for uh, versioning and storing models as well. Uh, but what we noticed and what we heard was that the the ecosystem did not really have a solution for versioning the training data set or implementing traceability between the training data set through to the experiment and the model. And, and so the, there were a few, you know, kind of new upstart tools out there that, that were trying to solve this problem, but, uh, they were all immature and, and none of them were, were, you know, enterprise ready. And so, um, you know, th this was a, a big gap and, and it was especially a, a, an especially painful gap in, in highly regulated industries like financial services and, and healthcare, 
um, you know, we talked to quite a few customers who who essentially told us, you know, we've been running a, a, a deep learning POC for, you know, one, two years now, but we can't get our models into production. We're, we're essentially stuck in the, the proof of concept phase, the science project phase, if you if you will. And the sticking point was almost always around uh, regulatory compliance or, or just uh, uh, compliance and, and risk in general. They, you know, basically, if they were going to be able to deploy a model to production, they needed to be able to, to ha- they needed traceability through the entire process that trained that model. And that includes traceability from the exact data set that was used to to train and, and produce that model. Uh, and, and that was a an unsolved problem and a, a problem that data scientists and, and uh, MLOps engineers were telling us they were having a very difficult time solving. Okay, so that kind of leads us into the entire point of this podcast is what did we do to try to fill that gap? Yeah, so, so we kind of, we heard this feedback and we had a, kind of a light bulb moment where we realized that we have technology on the truck already that that can solve these problems so if if we uh, go back to the needing to to store uh, you know or, or needing to create multiple copies of the the training data set problem uh, well if you store your training data set on a net at volume, then you can use our, our cloning technology, you know, the flex clone technology and ONTAP to near instantaneously copy that training data set. And so instead, you know, if you're a data scientist and you're, you're uh, you know, needing to make a copy of your data set so you can modify it to support a specific experiment, well, instead of waiting hours or days, you know, you in a couple of seconds, you can have a, a copy of your your data set, uh, and and this is um you know this isn't some new emerging you know un unproven immature technology, right? This this is our classic cloning technology that's trusted, proven, you know, used in in production environments and companies governments, public sector institutions all over the world. So it, it's it's a it's a proven technology and you know it, it can help data scientists cut quite a bit of you know wasted time out of their 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 process. Uh, and then in terms of the the traceability issue, the the data set traceability issue, uh, well Snapshots are the perfect solution to that, right? If you're if you're storing your training data set on a on a NetApp volume, uh, then each time you run a, a training job, you know e- each time you you produce a model, you can save off a, a snapshot near instantaneously of your your training data set and. Uh, store the snapshot ID in either your model repository or your experiment tracking tool or, or even in Git, you know, with that specific version of your, your training code. Uh, and, and you've got quick and easy data set to experiment, 
to model traceability there. And, and so there's no need to, you know, try and architect some, some complicated setup where you're copying data all over the place all the time at, you know, clone your data set near instantaneously when you want a copy of it, snapshot your data set near instantaneously when you need to save off a, a version of it for, for traceability. And, and so, um, you know, now if the if the compliance guys come knocking, right, and, and you're a data scientist and they say, hey, there's a, you know, we, we have some concerns about this model. What data did you use to train it? Well, you just go pull up that snapshot and there's the exact data set that was, was used to train it. You can always reproduce it. So, you know, we, we realized that we had solutions to these to these two challenges already on the truck and solutions based on proven technology. And so we went to our customers and, you know, that we'd had these conversations with them and we proposed clones and snapshots for, for these use cases. And the feedback was extremely positive. You know, the, the, you know, there were many instances where we were, you know, in a room or, or on a Zoom call with data scientists, and you know, you could kind of tell that their eyes were glazing over, right? That the storage guys are here; they don't care about storage. They just, you know, storage is is necessary, but but they just they just want it to be there and they want it to work. They don't care about it. Um, but when we would talk about the how we could make their lives easier with this cloning and and snapshotting, all the all of a sudden you would see their their eyes light up and and they would tune into the conversation. So reception was extremely positive, but uh, some months went by and we didn't really see any of these customers using clones or using snapshots and. You know, we we kind of regrouped and realized, uh, you know, the 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 storage tooling is is just not approachable for for data scientists and ML ops engineers, right? It's it's just very unfamiliar, very foreign, very unapproachable, um, and and you know, basically that 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 thinking was confirmed when we asked them why they weren't using it. And, and so we set out to basically uh, find a way to take these capabilities and make them very, very easy for, for data scientists and, and data engineers and ML ops engineers of the world to, to take advantage of. And, and kind of the, the culmination of this whole discovery process was uh, uh, a tool that we developed it uh, was originally called the the NetApp Data Science Toolkit, but we've we've since renamed to the the NetApp Data Ops Toolkit, uh, and, and you know, it it's a tool specifically designed for uh, end users, data scientists, data engineers, developers, and it, it gives them access to these capabilities in a very approachable and easy to uh, easy to consume interface yeah it's interesting you mentioned that you know they weren't using these features because they perceive them as 
I guess, difficult to use, right? They probably looked at the ONTAP interface and said, man, that, that's not what I'm used to. And what's you know interesting about that is that often gets misconstrued as, as something that's hard, when in reality, it's just a language they don't speak. So what you've essentially done here with the toolkit is put it into languages they speak, and now they can consume these features that are fairly simple to use. It's just now they can do it in a way that they understand. Exactly. That's, that's spot on. So the, yeah, I mean, uh, essentially, you know, those of us who are familiar with ONTAP and use ONTAP all the time, you know, we, we, we know that taking a snapshot or creating a clone is as easy as just clicking a button and system manager, right? It, it's not complicated. The, um, you know, you, you hit the, the nail on the head. The challenge was around, uh, terminology and, and language. Basically the, you know, a, a data scientist comes into a, into something like system manager and they're like, where do I even go? You know, which volume is the volume my data's on? What's an SVM? You know, <laughs> hey, where do I go to find the button to, to take a snapshot? So, you know, basically what we've given them is a, a instead is a is a python library so data scientists and data engineers typically work in either python or r uh, you know Py, r r i would say is is uh more so used in you know machine learning applications python is is a uh, very popular for deep learning applications. And, and so um, these data scientists are used to, and data engineers are, are used to writing code in Python. They're writing their training code in Python to, to train their models. Uh, and so, you know, we developed this, this Python library called the, the NetApp Data Ops Toolkit. And now if, uh, you know, if a data scientist wants to add a step to their training job that saves off a, a snapshot of their training data set, it's as simple as just importing the create snapshot function into their their uh, training code and then invoking that function. And they only have to they only have to pass it one attribute. They only need to, or, or one argument, I should say. They, they only need to know the name of the volume that, uh, that their, their training data is, is stored on. Uh, and, and we've also given them an easy way to, to figure that out. You know, that there's, a, there's some recording, sorry, reporting capabilities in the tool as well that, you know, kind of show all the volumes that are out there you know, which are mounted locally, where they're mounted. Uh, and, and so the, the data scientist has visibility into which volumes, which, you know, which one lines up with which folder on their, their current system they're working on. And then, uh, um, you know, doing something like creating a clone or creating a snapshot is as simple as, is just, either running a, a CLI command or invoking a, a function because uh, this Python library can, can function as a, a you know, there, there's a little CLI utility that we developed to go along with it for, for those who prefer to work from the, the terminal. Uh, so, so that's an a, additional interface that it offers uh, in addition to the importable 
library of Python functions. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's similar to like, if you find an ancient text and it's written in Aramaic, <laughs> you don't go ask everybody to learn Aramaic. <laughs> you translate it, right? You translate it into languages they understand. Exactly, yeah. So now the developers, they don't have to leave their development environment to go do something with the storage. You, you know, it, they... They're working in the same language in the same environment that they're they're used to to working in, and they can, you know, do everything from there and, and just one simple little command for for each task. So what this also allows us to do is it allows us to kind of add a gateway to the backend storage. So it doesn't really matter what the storage is at that point. So in in NetApp's case, we don't have just ONTAP. We have ONTAP, we have E-Series, we have SolidFire. We have a variety of, of things you can use as a backend storage. So the data, the, uh, data, the data ops toolkit allows us to consume multiple storage interfaces. So which ones do that, does the data ops toolkit currently support today? Yeah, so the, there's two flavors of the, the toolkit. So the um, what we noticed as we were getting into this space is that data science teams are, are kind of split. Some of them don't have a lot of IT support at all. They're smaller teams. And basically, they've done something like, uh, you know, buy a few DGXs paired with NetApp storage, uh, you know, what we call our ONTAP AI reference architecture. And they're uh, just sitting, you know, basically they're SSHing into those DGXs and just, you know, running their training jobs directly there from the the terminal. You know, that that it's it's a pretty rudimentary setup because they don't have a lot of uh, IT or or DevOps support helping them out. And and so for for those types of teams, we we developed a flavor of the toolkit that we call the, the data ops toolkit for traditional environments. So that's targeted towards, um, uh, you know, VM and, and bare metal based environments. So it, it's intended to serve as just kind of a very simple standalone data management solution for those, those kinds of teams that, that don't have a lot of, of IT or, or DevOps support. Uh, and, and the, the, the predominant uh, kind of target target deployment uh, architecture for that is ONTAP AI, but it, it does support any ONTAP. So it that traditional toolkit supports uh, you know, our, our AFF all flash arrays. It supports uh, cloud volumes on tap. It supports any incarnation of, of on tap. Like I said, that only covers about half of the data science teams we work with. The, the other half are um, either they've already standardized on Kubernetes or they have plans to standardize on Kubernetes. And, and these are typically the, the teams in the bigger enterprises that have a lot of uh, MLOps and and DevOps support helping them out. You know, basically the the whole enterprise is standardizing on Kubernetes, and and so the data scientists are also working on on Kubernetes. And and so for for these types of users, we we actually have a a flavor of the toolkit called the Data Ops Toolkit for Kubernetes. Uh, and this basically it provides all of the same capabilities. But in a Kubernetes native format, so it's it's uh, 
you know, basically when you when you provision a volume using this toolkit, that volume's represented in the cluster by a persistent volume claim. When you clone a volume, the new volume clone is automatically represented by a persistent volume claim or PVC in the cluster. Uh, snapshots that you create are, are actually uh, snapshots, you know, volume snapshot objects in the Kubernetes cluster. So basically it just does, does everything in a Kubernetes native format. Uh, and and uh, this is built on top of Trident, our CSI driver, and also the, the BGFS CSI driver, which is, is uh, um, you know, used in conjunction with, with E-Series. And, and so this flavor of the toolkit, because of the flexibility of, of building on top of a base layer like Trident, it supports, in addition to ONTAP, it, it also supports our cloud volume service uh, Azure NetApp files, and uh, like I mentioned, also BGFS on top of E-Series. Are you seeing an uptick in uh, data science leveraging the cloud more? Or is that something that is interesting to, to companies to do? So the interesting thing about data science use cases and, and deep learning specifically is it's kind of moving in the opposite direction of everything else. So a lot of these data scientists got started in the cloud because it's easy, right? And and the upfront investment is is much smaller. And and so, you know, they got started in the cloud, but now they've achieved some success and uh, as they kind of expand their operations, the cloud becomes extremely, extremely expensive. I, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but the the hourly rate for these GPU instances in the cloud is absolutely insane. I mean, it's just crazy expensive. And I, I know uh, um, you know, we we've done some break-even calculations for a few customers that that show that they can if if they if they move on premises. Uh, away from the cloud for their 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 data science activities, they can break even in as soon as one year. These these cloud you know, GPU compute instances are are so expensive. So we we actually see a lot of uh, data science teams moving in the opposite direction of the the overall trend. You know, they're starting in the cloud, but but moving on premises. The uh, I, I think one of the, the big benefits of our, our data ops toolkit is that it provides the same user experience across cloud and, and on-premises. And, and so, you know, it's very easy for someone to get started in the cloud uh, and then move on-premises and have the same exact user experience and, and not have to, you know, retool their their entire process uh, following that move. As far as the toolkit goes, is it you know, who's using this and you know who's consuming it and what are they consuming it the most for? Yeah, so like I mentioned, it was you know it was originally designed with data scientists and ML ops engineers in mind, um, and and most of them are you know using it for the. You know they're using it for the those cloning and and snapshotting capabilities that I I mentioned and the 
the time savings and and also compliance uh, regulatory benefits that that come along with that. Uh, so uh, you know because it was originally designed and, and targeted towards uh, data scientists and data engineers. Right now, uh, we have mostly data scientists and, and data engineers using it, but we you know, we have actually seen some interest from a more traditional software development teams and using it to manage their development environments. And, and uh, you know, th- this kind of comes into play where we're talking about, you know, more traditional monolithic code bases where, you know, the code base is massive and to test things, you, you have to have, to test things as a developer, to test new code, you have to have a lot of, built artifacts and um you know oftentimes to to pull down the code base and then build the artifacts that you need we're talking you know uh, i've heard about customers where that process takes you know longer than a day and so um you know we we have a few customers that have been using clones and and snapshots to accelerate that process for for a while now for for some some years now but you know it at this point that's kind of limited to the customers who had the the uh skills in-house to be able to kind of you know build their own their own custom processes that invoked on tap apis to to do these things and to to add that into their their ci cd pipeline um, but we've we've seen some interest from customers who haven't been who have on tap storage and haven't been taking advantage of um, you know the, these cloning capabilities for their development workspaces, but now see the the data ops toolkit as a way that they can easily work clones into their their uh, CI/CD pipelines or, or their uh, dev workspace creation processes. So we're we're actually working uh, as as we speak with a a semiconductor a, a customer in the semiconductor space who's looking at using the the toolkit to to speed up their their dev workspace creation process. And there's you know, there's really some significant, significant savings that that uh, customers can gain from from uh, using clones in their their process in this manner. I mean, we we talked to to one customer who said that they, you know, you know, had at least you know a thirty percent productivity boost. Because their developers no longer have to wait a day each time they need a, a new workspace, and and I know uh, internally here at NetApp, uh, they've been using clones for dev workspaces for years, and they were really able to to uh, you know kind of turbocharge the ONTAP development process and and uh, you know improve the the release cadence. Uh, and and also get more features into to releases by by taking advantage of this. So we're we're starting to see a lot of interest for for this uh, use use case. Uh, you know, outside of the data science use cases that the toolkit was 
originally targeted towards. Um, and it, it it's kind of a natural extension of the the toolkit, right? If the if the toolkit was designed to make cloning, you know, easy for someone who's used to working in Python, snapshots easy for someone who's used to working in Python. Well, you know, you know, kind of naturally, it it makes sense that that a lot of uh, development teams, DevOps teams out there, are going to see this as a a much easier way to work clones and snapshots into their um, their CI/CD processes and and that was actually part of the motivation behind renaming the the toolkit we didn't want to give the impression that it was limited to the data science use cases and so we we renamed it to to the data ops toolkit to reflect the fact that it you know it it really is useful for a, a broad array of of use cases where end users need access to these capabilities yeah it's interesting about you know hearing about these things like flex clone that people weren't really aware of. Cause I feel like a lot of the problems that can be solved out there are just a matter of people knowing things exist. <laughs> like a lot of people don't know some of these features in ONTAP exist. And it's, you know, if, if you can educate them from a way that they understand in their use cases and their solutions, that helps bridge the gap with you know, what these features are and what they actually do and the awareness of them. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, what I've found talking to customers is that, all, you know, the storage guys always know this stuff exists, but the the end users often don't. Um, and uh, many times the, the, the storage guys don't, aren't really aware of how, you know, kind of the, the features that they have to offer can help their, their end users. And so, um, you know, I, I found that that uh, making end users aware of these these capabilities really kind of opens up a, a whole new a whole new world to them. You know, they they kind of realize that um, really through through no one's fault. You, you know, they they had a Ferrari, but they were they had parked it in the garage, right? To to use that tired analogy. All right, cool. So it sounds like the data ops toolkit is the way to go if you're trying to start architecting these types of solutions. Where would I find that data ops toolkit to begin with? So if you Google NetApp data ops toolkit, that's the the easiest way to to find it. I I just ran that Google search and the the uh, and I did it in an incognito window just to just to make sure. And the the top two results are the uh, uh, the two flavors of our toolkit in the the Python package repo, and then the the third result is the the GitHub repo. So the the um, any of those places will, will have links to the documentation. So uh, yeah, the the easiest thing to do is just going to be to to uh, put it into a Google search and uh, you know click that first result, and and you'll be able to get into the the documentation that way and within the documentation there's some links to some uh some blogs that that kind of outline how the toolkit can help accelerate uh the ai training process um you know that there's some there's also a blog around how with the the kubernetes toolkit data scientists can can basically abstract away the concept of data volumes and and just focus on 
on uh, data science workspaces. I, I definitely recommend checking that out. And, and within the documentation, there, there's also some um, links to to some YouTube demo videos. So you know, if you're interested in seeing the toolkit in action, definitely go go check out those those demo videos on YouTube. All right. And again, if we wanted to reach you, Michael, how would we do that? Yeah. So again, the, the best way is going to be LinkedIn. Uh, I, I'm, I'm out there on LinkedIn. So, you know, just, just search my name. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll see a, a Mike Oglesby that's a technical marketing engineer focused on AI at NetApp. And, and that's me. And uh, feel free to, to shoot me a note on there. Yeah, we'll be sure to include the links to your uh, to the to the data ops toolkit as well as your LinkedIn profile on, on the blog here for the show. Sounds good. All right, excellent. Thanks so much for joining us today and talking to us all about you know data ops and data science and all sorts of data things. Yeah, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via TechOnTapPodcast.com. If you'd like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Michael Oglesby for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.